hell with the lid off. That was the title given to the city of Pittsburgh by a writer for the Atlantic Monthly. This writer visited the town in 1866, writing, quote, The town lies low, as at the bottom of an excavation, just visible through the mingled smoke and mist, and every object in it is black. Smoke, 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 everywhere smoke. It was like looking over into hell with the lid taken off. Well, that is not exactly a tourism strategy. But then again, that wasn't the point. This is Pittsburgh in the boom of the American Industrial Revolution. 40% of the nation's iron, 50% of her glass, it all came from the city of Pittsburgh. She burned somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 tons of coal annually. That's the reason for this review, the, the coal smoke and the coal soot. Her geography couldn't have been better for this. Three major rivers convened at Pittsburgh. There's steamboats and railroads. The hills were filled with coal. 500 factories produced this black smoke. It's been said that at times people needed a lantern during the daytime. And you needed to change a shirt if you worked in an office. Astronomical amounts of pollution were produced there every day. Well, friends, we also have a pollution problem. And it's far darker than this coal soot. It's far darker than the cloud. It is hell with the lid off, and it is right here in our hearts. Now, one might accuse me of overstatement, perhaps I'm exaggerating things quite a bit, but I assure you that I am not. If anything, I am understating the fact, because when we look at the scriptures and read God's verdict on the condition of our heart, we see that the heart is full of evil and insane. It's devious above all else. Jeremiah calls it desperately sick in the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom. It reads, quote, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Well, this morning Jesus teaches that true defilement comes from within, that the source of our sin lies in our hearts. And his message upends our defenses. It tears down our excuses and it teaches that you and I are not innocent. And we learn also this morning that though these hearts, our hearts, are defiled, God desires them. Every object in it is black. There's smoke, smoke, smoke. Everywhere smoking, God looks at us and says, mine. Jesus teaches us about the heart. And Lord willing, we will come before God today. We'll come before him desperate and helpless, but confident. And we're going to approach the Lord's table today, aware of our hearts, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Well, what I want to do this morning is explore two truths about our hearts. We might call it the wellspring of life. And this comes to us from Matthew chapter 15. 
If you would, open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. We'll cover the first 20 verses this morning. We'll start in verse 1. The heart will be the central theme of our message today. And as we speak of it, just note we're not speaking of the physical organ, um, the literal, literal heart beating in our chest. We're speaking of the heart as in the, the soul or the spirit. And if you're visiting with us, if you're just joining us this morning, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going through Matthew's Gospel verse by verse. Matthew was a disciple or a follower of Jesus, and he set out to put pen to paper. And he's showing us that Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the promised king. Let's look at the first nine verses of Matthew chapter 15. God desires the heart. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help me, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. Well, our account today begins with a question. It's a question lobbed at our Lord by two groups. You see them listed there, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the religious authorities of the days of Jesus. And this means that his reputation has risen to the upper echelons of religious society. The religious leaders know about the workings or the teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of John places Jesus in Galilee at this time. And that means that these Pharisees and scribes have made the journey or the trek from Jerusalem to Galilee to find Jesus. This is serious business. This is black SUVs with men in black suits and ties, earpieces in, rolling up in Alger. And by all appearances, these men are really sporting for a fight. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, they ask him? They're not washing their hands when they're eating bread. Do you see what their objection is based upon? Tradition. It's the tradition of the elders. And the word elder in this passage is used of a a religious authority or maybe a, a religious leader. Now, you and I may wash our hands before we eat. Our purpose is to kill the bacteria. It's to to not become ill. But that is not what this is. This is a ceremonial washing. This is a custom or a ritual. And to be fair, biblically, there is a place for this. The scriptures did command washing, but it was for the priests. 
Back in Leviticus 22, they were to cleanse themselves before eating in certain kinds of circumstances. But the Pharisees go well beyond this. And they take this command and apply it to every Jew. It's their tradition. Mark's gospel, he writes of this same encounter, lists that they also apply these type of traditions to cups and pitchers and copper pots. I mean, these guys are washing everything. They're becoming obsessed with a ritual cleanliness. And the list goes on from there. Any kind of contact with dead or decaying animals, creeping things, human excretion, idols. They, they wash their hands because of people, classes of people. Any contact with Samaritans, lepers, tax collectors, Gentiles, corpses. I wonder if we went back in Matthew, what the number would be if we counted how many times Jesus touched these people. But why do they do this? Where did this all come from? What's the purpose of this? It's safety. To safeguard the law. They want to obey. They want to be holy as God is holy. And that's a good motive. That's an, that's an excellent intention. But Jesus is going to show us in just a moment that these traditions actually prevented obedience to the law they sought to protect. And what happens here is that they keep stacking up these traditions, tradition upon tradition, year after year. These traditions just keep growing. The mountain is increasing. And the taller this mountain gets, the less distinction between law and tradition. The line becomes blurred. They began as what are called oral traditions. This would be a verbally passing it down from one generation to the next. And over time, this just became too much to manage. They began to write them down. By the end of the second century, this is after the time of Jesus, they were actually put to paper. One volume or multiple volumes would be called the Mishnah. And this contained various divisions of recorded traditions, traditions for for agriculture, festivals, marriage, civil, criminal, and even ceremonial rituals. And eventually, this Mishnah, built around the law, needed its own padding. The, The commentary was called the Gemara. So you had the law, then the Mishnah, then the Gemara. To give you an illustration, just concerning the Sabbath of one of these traditions, you may recall the Old Testament law regarding the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, these religious leaders would ponder for a moment and ask themselves, how can we do this? How can we keep the Sabbath holy? Well, let's create some traditions. Let's install some some safeguards or some guardrails. And just so no one breaks the Sabbath, so no one inadvertently performs any type of work, we need some traditions. Let's prohibit the weaving together of two threads. Let's prohibit the kindling of a fire. 
the extinguishing of a fire. Do not look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You may be tempted to pluck out a gray hair in a beard. That would classify as work. Do not spit on the Sabbath. It could land in the dirt, scuffed with a sandal. That's equivalent to cultivating soil. The list goes on. Their intentions, again, their intentions began well. They have God's law, padded by the Mishnah, padded by the Gemara. But those lines separating them began blurred, began to blur. To give you another illustration, this is like taking my son Lucas. He's eight months now. He's learning to sit upright, or when he learned to sit upright, we'd sit him down in the middle of the room, and we'd surround him with pillows, just in case anything happened there. Is this a wise move? Yes, it'd be unwise not to consider such things. He's precious and he's valuable, so we want to build this circle so nothing inadvertently happens to what is valuable. But then, if you could believe it, my focus becomes on the pillows. This is amazing embroidery. Look at this pillow. I'm going to go in the next room and bring in some more pillows. That would be a complete loss of focus on what is precious and what is right. And that's what happened with the Pharisees to the Old Testament law. Now, I want to be careful here. I am not out today on a campaign to upend the word tradition. We are not out to make tradition a bad word. There's nothing inherently sinful about tradition. You and I have habits. We have traditions. We would even argue that God has built a rhythm into his creation. There is, is a, um, a, a tradition about the way we live our lives from sunrise to sunset. The Old Testament is filled with them. In fact, God commands them to keep certain traditions. That would eventually become law. But the New Testament also commands traditions. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So here's Paul, this leading apostle of God, just a few short years between the account of Matthew 15 and the writing of 2 Thessalonians. Paul commands traditions. Church traditions are good. In fact, they're inescapable. We cannot escape traditions. People that have a problem with traditions and bemoan them actually have a tradition of hating tradition. So then what's the problem? Hell with the lid off the human heart. The human heart has an ability to take everything good created by God and turn it into bad. Food becomes gluttony. Wine becomes drunkenness. Sex becomes immorality. Marriage becomes adultery. Charity becomes pride. Tradition becomes gospel. These Pharisees accused Jesus of neglecting their traditions, 
the hands were to be down, the water poured off the fingertips, the hands turned up, water poured off the wrist. They are not doing this. The ceremonial washing is being neglected. But Christ counters here with a question. In verses 3 through 6, he, he points out their hypocrisy. It is they who break God's law. They torpedo the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Mark chapter 7 also records this account, and he elaborates on what Jesus speaks of. Here's the problem. Jesus says to them, if any man says to his father or mother, whatever I have to help you is Corbin, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, you invalidate the word of God by your traditions, and you do many such things as that. Now, you heard a word in there. The word was Corbin. Corbin was a tradition created to devote something to God, to have uh, some resources or goods, and to take them and say, these are Corbin, these are given to God. And what was happening here is that these Pharisees were, were making many things Corbin that should have been used to help out their mother and their father, thus dishonoring them. They were supposed to be giving them to God, but in essence, transferring them back to themselves. And Jesus says, you yourselves, in your traditions, are breaking the law. And it goes even deeper than that as this account goes on. We see that these are, are simply external religions or external deeds. These are man-made rituals. They've become obstacles to obedience to God. And worst of all, they're performed by cold hearts. Jesus says, he quotes Isaiah, God speaking, the, the people honors me with their lips, but their, their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They're giving God lip service. They're, they're speaking words or they're performing deeds and their hearts are far from God. This is like having a watch and polishing the watch when I need a new battery. It's like needing a tune-up on your car but taking it to the car wash. It's like needing a heart procedure but going to the plastic surgeon. God is not interested in worship without the heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees, and it's the message you and I must receive this morning. But to borrow from Charles Spurgeon, how many of us would still be Christians if we didn't have church at 10.30 this morning? In other words, sitting here does not make any of us Christians. It certainly is a part of being a Christian. Do not forsake your assembling together. That's basic obedience to God. But to do this without the heart, that's just like tradition or ritual. It's what we do on Sundays, but I'll tell you, believer, God wants your heart. As dark or smoky as it may be, God wants your heart. He wants to renew your heart. He wants it to belong to him. And he wants us to sing, and he wants us to give, and he wants us to pray, and he wants us to fellowship. He wants us to greet one another, but he wants us to do it with hearts fully devoted to him. Amen. Unencumbered by sin. Free from the ugliness of the human heart. And this is God's desire for us. Well, what Jesus now teaches is that this doesn't necessarily come naturally. 
He's going to teach us that, that the heart is the source of the problem. But we also learn that Jesus is the one who can solve that problem. In verses 10 through 20, Jesus speaks of defilement. Defilement flows from the heart. We saw that, that God desires the heart. He wants the heart But we see there's a problem here, that there's a defilement about it. I want to look just at verses 10 through 14 to begin. Jesus continues, After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. What proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus goes even further here. It's as though he is uh, unafraid of of fear of man here. Um, He really doubles down on his message. In essence, he's saying, he's going to say that, that the heart is ground zero for all that we are, for all that we might say or all that we might do. And, and even more than that, the focus of this passage has to do with the defilement of the heart. It has to do with the heart's impurity or the heart's uncleanness. In verses 11 through 20, he's going to use the word defile five times. And what he's saying here is that that unclean hands. These, these are not the problem. It's, it's an unclean heart. And he wants us to think deeper than just our external acts. And once again, the Pharisees have become another illustration of the problem. In verse 12, we notice that the disciples are, <clears throat> excuse me, they're concerned that Jesus might offend the Pharisees. But we saw also that, that he doubles down on this. He gives two illustrations. He says to them, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. And here he's inferring that the Pharisees are that plant, that they will be condemned, that it is they who will be uprooted. I would point you back to the parables of Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, the parable of the wheat and tares. There's some great illustrations of what Jesus speaks of here, this uprooting of what is bad and what is wrong. He also calls them blind guides. Again, he's inferring that the Pharisees are spiritually blind, that they are spiritually blind and they will lead others to be the same way. Well, Peter is somewhat dumbfounded by these illustrations So in verse 15, Peter asks, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, Thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Here, Christ teaches the centrality of the heart. And he does so 
through an eighth grade health class lesson. When you and I eat food, the body digests it and the body discards it. The food passes through the body. Now, the effects of it stick around. Some of you will need to buy new pant sizes after this holiday season. You understand that. But you understand the point as well. Bad stuff in, bad stuff out. And I would imagine that he had to get some chuckles, as he stated in verse 17, literally translated from the Greek, quote, everything entering into the mouth, into the stomach it goes, and into the toilet it leaves. Some of your Bible versions might use the word latrine. Mine left both words out, but it's definitely in the Greek. So Jesus says what goes into the mouth is is not the problem. You didn't wash your hands? Well, we've got much bigger problems than dirty hands. He says what comes out of the mouth is the problem. And what he's doing is he's using the mouth to make his point. Because as you and I know, unfortunately, sin is much bigger than just language or, or words. In fact, verse 19 in our text this morning shows that there are a number of ways that sin manifests itself or that the heart puts itself on display. The heart makes the externals meaningful, or the heart makes the traditions useful, looking back at our last point. In his commentary on Matthew, Leon Morris writes of verse 18, at one stroke, Jesus removes the necessity for a multiplicity of regulations to cover a variety of situations and concentrates on one attitude that will take care of them all. And that is why God is after the heart. He's not after more songs or more money or more attendance. All of those things will follow the heart. They always do. A heart wholly dedicated to Christ will display an overflow of these things. But it must start with the heart. In fact, to the point of our passage this morning, the the heart is why we sin. Verse 19 teaches us that that our our sin comes from our hearts. And this is a, a similar point Jesus made, if you can recall, back in the Sermon on the Mount. There he spoke about murder. Well, well, murder originates in the heart. It's it's anger, anger in the heart. Jesus spoke of adultery. Well, that originated in the heart. It was lust in the heart. It's the heart which which defiles you, and it's the heart which defiles me. And I realize that this news is less than thrilling this morning. But in it, contained in this as well, is the solution. Because the key to change also lies in the problem. The heart is the problem, but also change takes place in the heart. Now, this is something you will not read tomorrow morning. Alistair Begg has observed when people set out to explain why our morning newspapers contain tales of theft and lewdness, envy, adultery, and so on. The explanation often falls under one of three words, environment, education, or example. In other words, the way the world describes the problems happening is a very different way than how the Bible explains the problems. We'll use 
Billy, borrowing a name. Let's say Billy comes from a deficient environment. Let's say Billy's economically poor or Billy has lousy friends. Billy came from the wrong side of the track. Maybe Billy had a poor education. He had low grades. He was a high school dropout. No one really taught Billy right from wrong. Maybe Billy had bad examples. His parents were absent. He had no one to model how to do life. Each of these items will be put forth in the headlines to explain the problem with Billy. But you will not read about the heart, the actual source of the problem. Are these reasons set forth by the world wrong? No. They all represent very real influences that happen in our lives. Yet none of them gets to the source, not like Jesus does. The defiled heart. And I see that the world's reasoning continues to come up short in this area. Ultimate solutions are always going to address change at the heart level. And that only God in the person of Jesus through his word can do that. The world is woefully under-equipped to do this heart-level work. The world has no bibliology. They have no inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, enduring word from the Lord. The world has no theology proper. If it does believe there's a God, it tells you you can invent him and create him however you want. It's up to your personal preferences. The world also has a skewed anthropology. They have no idea where we came from. They have no idea why we're here, and they have no clue where we're going. The world has no homardiology. They believe that the word sin is going to hurt people's self-esteem and that people are basically good. There's no Christology. Jesus might be a lot of things, but he's not God, and he's definitely not my Lord. There's no soteriology. Again, if there's nothing wrong, why do we need fixed? And there's no eschatology, no judgment, no eternity, no hope. Defiled hearts, broken lives, we need Christ. Genuine heart change can only come from the word of God in the person of Christ. And to the extent that the world goes at this change alone, without the word of God, without the Holy Spirit, without biblical repentance and prayer, it's to that extent that the source of the problem remains. Can you see this morning that your heart is the source of your sin? Or is it still someone else? Michael, you don't understand. Every time I talk to Susie, I find myself slandering, thinking evil thoughts. Jesus says, no. Susie brings these things out, which are already in the heart. And only when you and I are ready to confess our sins, only then are we ready for what, is, for what change Christ can bring. It's that deep, heart-level repentance. The Bible offers many tools for change. When we believe upon Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit, God's word becomes powerful. Paul writes about about putting on and putting off. We're, We're putting off old habits and putting on new habits. We're affecting ourselves at the heart level. The Bible speaks about union with Christ. We apply our new identity in Christ. That'll change our hearts. Biblical repentance is more than I'm, I'm sorry. That's a deep heart level change. 
There's church engagement. The Bible reveals how God uses his church to strengthen our hearts. And there's the renewal of the mind. It shows the effect that our, our thoughts have on our hearts. And the list goes on. The Bible's filled with these rich, wonderful ways to apply God's truth to our lives. But here's what we must recognize for any of that to happen. We must recognize what these Pharisees missed, that we need Christ. Only Jesus can bring that heart-level change. Our teacher this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave his life for the sins of your heart. And if you come to him, confessing Jesus, I sin. Not Jesus, I'm a victim. Not Jesus, I'm innocent. I have a part in it. No, Lord, I've done it and I'm guilty. And I come before your throne confessing that you are king and you are God and you can forgive. Then you will be forgiven of that sin. Then you will have power for change. And if you ask God to bring that change, he will do it. You can even pray from where you are right now, create in me a clean heart, O God. But keep in mind that it's not the prayer that changes anything. Again, if we learned anything this morning, it's not that we have the right words or the right deeds. If they, they, they cannot come from a heart undivided from Jesus. But at the same time, if you pray that, if you genuinely desire a new heart, God can bring about that change. And these things which defile a person, Christ can work to change in your life. Because it all begins with the heart. This is what God desires. If God would speak to you where you are this morning, what would he say? I'm not interested in your attendance and your singing. I'm not interested in your money or your attire, whatever you might wear, or your prayers. I'm not interested in the external deeds. I'm not interested in the traditions. I don't care if your hands are dirty. God would say, I want your heart. And if there be any way in us this morning, anything in us that we might want to to repent and confess to God, to give him our full heart, let us do that as we come together to the Lord's table. As we come to the Lord's table, it's, it's a wonderful picture of what God does with that confessed sin. God doesn't just leave us empty. God doesn't leave us in neutral. He fills us. We confess our sin. And as we, we eat of the bread, and as we drink of the cup, we're reminded that we are, are filled anew with God and his power and God and his word and God and his grace. This table this morning, it's, it's not for Pharisees. The table is is not for for non-Christians. The table is not for perfect people. It's for imperfect people. The table is for normal Christians. People like you and me. People whose hearts have been converted by the grace of God. People whose hearts God lovingly desires. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us The Lord Jesus, uh, what an amazing teacher he is. He taught truth perfectly, clearly. He taught it memorably. I can only imagine what it would have been like to stand in his presence and hear him preach. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your your body and, and your blood for our sins. We gather around your table today to proclaim your name until you return. Thank you for the, the bread and thank you for the wine. May we see it as a picture of the filling that you bring us. You don't leave us empty. You fully forgive us and fill us with, with grace and with your spirit and with forgiveness. May that be a, a picture of that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.